Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. Hey, everybody. This week, we have something a little different for you. Each month over on the SciShow Tangents Patreon, we post a new episode of our bonus podcast, and we wanted to share one of them with our non-patron listeners. You'll be hearing the very first bonus episode we did, where we answered a bunch of listener questions. But since then, we've done a lot of goofy stuff. Like there's one episode where I quizzed my Brainiac co-host with questions from a high school science study guide. And, of course, the infamous Poo Poo Peepedia episode. Members of the SciShow Tangents Patreon get monthly episodes like this, plus a newsletter and illustrated science poems, and, of course, once we hit 500 patrons, we'll release a special commentary track of the movie Cars 2. You can check out all that and more at patreon.com slash scishowtangents. So I hope you enjoy this special unlocked patron bonus episode, and if you're already a patron, thank you so much. We couldn't do the show without you. Hello and welcome to our patron-only SciShow Tangents podcast, where Sam and Sari and I will answer questions from our patrons and also occasionally from other places. But I think right now we are loaded up with patron questions, so that's mm-hmm. what we'll be doing today. How are you two doing? Good. It's the morning, which is I know. Weird. We never do this in the morning. This is the earliest mm-hmm. we've ever done it. So uh-huh. contextually, I'm all fucked up. sam's in a terrible spot he's just (laughs) sarah's Um, got a bunch of rainbow flying cats on her shirt yeah 
My friend Nicole Sweeney made me this shirt. I have a very stressful day to day, so I'm using my college strategy of dressing mm. fun. Put on, to put on funny help clothes. Me through. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. Does that does that work for you? Um, sometimes it sets an intention at the beginning of the day. But like I was telling Sam and Tuna before we started recording, um, I got two very panic-inducing emails <laughs> this morning. So I'm writing that uh, anxiety adrenaline rush <laughs> of like, well. I'll deal with that fire later, and then that's right. going to be the energy in this podcast. It's, it's kind of frantic, <laughs> huh. sciency. Do I, have you ever gotten an email from me that makes you feel that way? Mm, no, I have. How are you doing, Hank? Uh, I'm okay. I don't really look that often at how I'm doing. What do you mean? Oh, <laughs> it seems like it seems like a dangerous game to check. You don't constantly do that, and. Fred about your internal whatever? No, I usually just plow on through. I don't really think about me very much. It just doesn't seem necessary. I'm good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We are going on spring break this week, though. Uh, Oren's spring break is this week. Oren, my four-year-old, has a spring break. He's got to relax. His little life's probably really stressful. (laughs) He's got a boss, too. He's got to do his homework. and Yeah. He has zero bosses. Good Lord. (laughs) This morning he had a meltdown because he didn't get to scramble the eggs. And I was like, well, the the eggs are already scrambled. I can't unscramble eggs. That's literally a saying. (laughs) And then he was like, and then he was like, but there's more eggs. And I was like, I'm not going to make more eggs just because you didn't get to scramble them. You know what we did? Because we made some more eggs. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. You got to lay down the law. (laughs) Do you want to do you want to write a poem real quick? It's gonna go like this. I'm like you'll you'll start, and then I'll add a rhyming oh. line, and then okay. we'll go back and forth like that. So you you do a line, and I I, okay. I will always since I since I'm springing this on you, I will always be responsible for actually rhyming. Okay, I'm sweating now. Um, we got some questions from our patrons. Gosh, patrons! Um, <laughs> there's really only one I can come up with, and it's a weird one. It is. It is. They're, they're like the male version of matrons, I guess. Now that I'm thinking about it, <laughs> that's an interesting observation. I don't want to write a poem anymore. Can we stop? I'm getting legitimately getting sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> You're responsible for saying a sentence. Okay. I know, but I can't. It's hard. <laughs> That's why I can't, you know. Okay. I crack under pressure. Let's look at these questions then. We got some personal questions and we got some science questions. Let's start with a short personal question just to get in the groove of answering questions. Okay. How do non-Newtonian fluids work? (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Let's actually answer that one because I I didn't even try to research this one. Do you know off the top of your head? I mean, basically, so so they work in different ways, I'm pretty sure. Like non-Newtonian fluids are just a fluid that doesn't behave in a pretty specific way. But it's like the if if something changes, is it always pressure? It it changes the way that it behaves. I think so. And so so the traditional one is oobleck, and basically what's happening is when it's under its own pressure, you know, not very much, it behaves like a fluid. But if you add pressure to it, it kind of like forms a crystal structure, and then it becomes a solid. And then if you let go of the pressure, it turns back into a liquid. So this happens with all things like if you add pressure to things they change their state eventually Mm -hmm. and uh if you decrease the pressure like if you you know take water and you add pressure eventually you will well water might be a weird example in in fact it is and it does not do this but almost everything does (laughs) you take a liquid and you add pressure eventually it will become a solid and if you take a liquid and you decrease pressure eventually it will become a gas which does happen Mm -hmm. with water 
but I don't know to to what extent that is actually applicable to non-Newtonian fluids. So I don't know if I'm just talking out of my ass here. But what I do know is you've, if you put pressure, it forms a crystal structure, and that crystal structure is, is solid. I think it has to do with viscosity. So like its ability to flow is, right. is what my understanding of non-Newtonian fluids is. So like, yes, if you compress anything, it'll turn into a solid, but it it's like before that point. If you like squeeze water in your hand, it will not <laughs> affect how water flows out of your hand. Yeah. And if you do that to juice or if you do that to soda, then then those are all fluid. Or if <laughs> you do it to air. Wa- that's all water. <laughs> that's all water. Okay. <laughs> There's not that. I mean, the pro- one of the things is we forget about this. There are very few liquids like yeah. at, yeah. at, you know, at, you know, standard temperature and pressure. So there's like water, alcohol, oils. Okay, but uh, then if you like expand to fluid, then then air, right? Is is a fluid? Oh, air is a fluid. Yeah, I guess air is. So if is you a squeeze new, air, is also a Newtonian fluid. Yeah, <laughs> it's still gonna flow the same way. Yeah, but then if you do like if you do oobleck or if you do ketchup, if you like move it or you squish it, then it'll flow differently. Then when than, it's just flowing. then if it doesn't have okay. yeah. And I think that that is the difference, maybe. Ketchup is a non-Newtonian is, fluid? I'm pretty sure. My friend George did a video for yeah. TED Talks about ketchup okay. being well, a non-Newtonian fluid. I, I believe fluid. it. <laughs> <laughs> what? It seems Why? right to me. Yeah. What was he teaching us? The non-Newtonian fluids. Okay. It's about how, like, why ketchup, like, in the bottle as, like, a clumpy. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it was a long time ago that I watched this video, so I won't be able to describe it good. But when you shake the ketchup then like its flow rate changes. Mm. So because you can add that pressure of like shaking, which air squishes up into it and then it it flows so, better. So the, mm. Basically, there's a TED talk you need to watch. Yeah. Type in ketchup non-Newtonian <laughs> fluid. We'll, we'll find a link and you'll have all of your show. questions no. answered. <laughs> uh, 9.30 a.m. Sarah, you cannot yeah. answer your you questions. You did your best, but. Thank you. Mm. But didn't do good. <laughs> no. Thank you to Caitlin for that question. I'm sorry that we did not uh, do it justice. We got we're going to do better on the next one. Sam, <laughs> let's do a personal right. question. Let's answer a, a burning question that a lot of people have asked us. What happened to chin coins? Miss Brock asked us this question. Okay. So. What happened to chin? So I don't know. We we were like, Stefan, you abandoned us. How can we take on? <laughs> we talked for a full year about how he's going to win this prize. Yeah. He wins the prize, and we're like, well. If you're not gonna if you're not gonna stick with us, then then you're trash. Now what what happened to Chin Coins? Well, okay. So it's hard to explain when he's not there. That's the main thing. We are soon going to start having guests on semi frequently. Mm-hmm. And I just could foresee a lot of situations where it was weird that they were called chin coins. People would be asking a lot of questions <laughs> that we wouldn't necessarily have have answers for. And Hank Bucks is much more self-explanatory because you're Hank. It's true. But at the same time, people would be like, oh, what a quirky podcast. They like chins a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I didn't think <laughs> about that. Stefan's last name being a body part is also a little bit confusing. Chins, I, I have found out recently, are uniquely uh, unique to humans. So... Yeah. Um, uniquely unique. <laughs> I feel bad about it. I mean, I kept trying. T- I was supposed to write an a explanation for why we got rid of them, but I just never did it. Because um, you felt so bad. That was you part of it. Spend time like thinking about stuff and feeling bad about it. And God bless Stefan. I miss him every day of my life. I talk to him every day <laughs> of my life too, but still. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in my head, it was 
for the guest thing, just right. to simplify, kind of lightly reboot the show. Mm-hmm. Start, clean slate. We'll, we'll find some way to honor him. <laughs> we, we will. but And by which I mean, we're probably going to forget about that. You guys got to let us forget about it, though, please. Okay. You want to do another science question now? Sure. Sari, is there a scientific formula to a great joke? Asked by Emma. <laughs> well, given that I'm not very funny, um, I wouldn't know this from... <laughs> from experience. But I did look into the philosophy and psychology of humor because a bunch of nerds being nerds throughout history are like, why do we think things are funny? Because Mm -hmm. it is, it is so bizarre. It's it's so strange. It's like, here's what's going to happen. You're going to hear something that you didn't expect. And then you're going to make this noise. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's not Mm -hmm. okay. That's not normal. Nothing else does that. That is all, in addition to chins, the one other thing that is unique about humans. (laughs) I think animals are delighted by things that they aren't expecting. Like dogs and cats and stuff, their eyes light up when when something Yeah, there do seem to be laugh responses in primates, but they are, Mm -hmm. they're not like our laughs and make the dumb noise we make. Anyway, (laughs) why do we make the dumb noise? So there are three theories that have kind of been unified into a fourth. So the relief theory is laughter is tension relief. So like nothing bad happened. We made it out just fine. Awkward or nervous laughter falls into this category where it's like, I don't know what to do right now. So I'm just going to make this noise and (laughs) everything will be fine. (laughs) The second theory is the superiority theory. So this is schadenfreude or laughing at other people's expense. So, like, it didn't happen to me. You fell on your face. Right. I'm going to laugh at that because nah. I, I have not fallen on my face and therefore this is funny. Hmm. Yeah, that works for me except that, like, sometimes I fall down and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> and so that one is incongruity theory, which right. is the unexpected happened. And that is sort of why anything random you can think of is funny. So, like, a joke that you construct with a punchline that is like all those all those like kid jokes like why yeah. why did the chicken cross the road because it farted like that's right. funny because it doesn't connect in any logical way yeah yeah i mean the, mo- most jokes take that form uh, uh, catherine i laughed so hard and she was so mad at me recently picked up a bottle of water and went to pour it in a cup ostensibly and poured it onto her salad <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, I just like fucking lost it, <laughs> and she's like, like, and it had been like a rough day, so like it was tense, and she, and like she was distracted because we had just like disciplined our son because he's oh. a little jerk right now, and he's yelling at me about eggs, and I just like fell onto my knees. It was so funny, and she was like, "It's not funny. I poured water all over." So what you just described with Catherine and her salad is like part of the unifying theory that I found, which is the benign violations theory. So something that is bad or rude or a violation of some norm, like you don't pour water on salad, but it's relatively harmless Mm. Uh to the person that Mm. it's relatively harmless to. It's hilarious. But then if someone else considers it harmful or bad or sad that it's not funny to them and that explains a lot of like Mm. why i might find something funny that someone else doesn't right it's why Catherine did not find it funny that she had poured a bunch of water on her salad yeah Yeah, it was not harmless to her but Uh it was harmless to you and therefore (laughs) hilarious 
Oh, crap. Oh, that's not empathetic. That's not good husbanding. Did she eat it anyway? Yeah, yeah, we figured it out. But yeah, then there are a lot of like weird social elements to it. Like we laugh to show that we're in an in group with other people because Mm -hmm. we also find the same things funny. Mm. Right. It's when it's yeah, it's like when later on in this podcast where I will bring up a thing that we already talked about and it won't be that it won't be like that interesting or funny. But because we it's referencing a thing that already happened, it will be funny for some reason. Yeah, and I feel like that's a lot of meme humor is just like, oh, I get this. Like every TikTok, yeah. Yeah, it (laughs) assembles pieces of knowledge that I didn't think were useful, and that's fun. Or or didn't think were related, which is, again, a bit of a violation. I like that because it's, like a violation can be a lot of different things, and it doesn't have to be bad. It's just a violation of of expectation or of a norm, and yeah. Anyway, so that's the scientific formula for a joke violate something uh, oh in, not necessarily in a bad way. Uh, well, and then ideally in a funny. good way. Ideally in a good way. Let's do another personal question. What was the worst episode idea? <laughs> Does anybody? Mrs. Brock also asked this one. Miss Brock really was putting our feet to the fire. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Brock wants to, wants to get the real dirt. Yeah. I think our best episode idea was piss. I think that's pretty. <laughs> that one is definitely up there. That's just recency bias. Oh god! Yeah, but come on. It's yeah. It is the most recent one we did. I don't remember ones that I thought were particularly bad, but there were some that were really hard, mm-hmm. like holes. I remember being weirdly hard. We just couldn't come up with any good science holes. I don't know. We usually pull it out in the end. I feel like though, we do okay. I feel like our worst ideas we just haven't done. Because we were like, there's no way we're going to find four facts about nipples <laughs> or something like right. that. And like have them all well, be different and compelling and, and things like that. Yeah. Those the nipples are pretty straightforward. Time. I remember time being one that when it was over, I was like, I didn't feel good about that one. Not a bad episode idea necessarily. Just. It's hard. Yeah. I think the harder episodes are where we spend so much time defining it and like that's part of the fun of tangents is like figuring out what exactly we're talking about and how all our topics mesh together Mm -hmm. by those definitions but if we get too in the weeds then we're just like talking science and we forget to goof because we're like no what actually is a hole what Mm -hmm. actually is time and how are we keeping track of it and it's all fake uh and then we Mm -hmm. get overwhelmed instead of like goofy there are some some things where it's 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 the most fun if you treat it the sort of like most sort of it's almost like we're abusing the topic. We're saying like, yeah, but uh-huh. what are you? What are you? And like really interrogating it. And that uh-huh. can be really fun. But with some things, it's kind of like with time, it's kind of not because it's like, oh, no, I feel weird. What is time, though? We're all going <laughs> to die, though, at least like that. We know that. <laughs> SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary-defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, They sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks, and we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850+, their best-selling honey. It's not the same. (laughs) It's not (laughs) what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 plus Manuka honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's manukora.com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Here's another science question. How do we know what the Milky Way really looks like since we are inside it? I feel like it would be like knowing what a large building looks like when you're stuck inside just one of the rooms, asks Derek Morelli. Mm. It would be like that if you could see through the building. So if all the walls were transparent and you also aren't on the edge, you're a little bit on the inside. I love this. I like the metaphor now. There's a there's, you're inside of a big building and and uh-huh. you're sort of like uh, you're not at the window, but it's entirely transparent building. You're not at the window. You're like a few rooms in. But then on the other side, there's like a whole like 400 rooms in the other direction. 
So you can look this way and be like, okay, well, I can see everything that's between me and the edge of the building. And then you can look through the building in the other way. And it's like a bunch of stuff and you can't, you can't see everything because there's so much stuff, but you can mm-hmm. almost not, not the whole building, but for some of the building, you can actually see all the way through. So you can, you can get a kind of good idea of what the building right. is like from that perspective. And just the fact that you can see, you can't see through that part of the building means there's more building there. Yes. So you can make that. I did address the metaphor at the end. And my, my idea was, is like being in a building, but you can look out the window and see other buildings. And then you can look in the reflections of those right. buildings to see the building that you're in. And then maybe you can like peek up and down and like see a little bit. Oh, I'm, I'm this far off the ground. And it looks like maybe there's this much above me. So mm-hmm. I'm probably on like this floor. Yeah, it is also very helpful to be able to see other buildings and be like, ah, well, that's what those yeah. look like. <laughs> this building must be made out of the same stuff roughly as the building yeah. that I'm in. Okay, so one thing is that I'm the dumb guy who didn't know that there wasn't a picture of the Milky Way. Seems like maybe we had one, but apparently no. not. <laughs> no, no, we can't get out. Can't get out. How how long would it have to go away from us before we could get a picture of it? Forever. A very, a very, very, a very, very, long very, very long time. Even if we shoot it out the thin side? Yeah. Well, we'd have yeah. to shoot it up because we want to take we don't want to take an edge on picture. No. That's not gonna that's help boring. you. No. So you want to do upper diagonal, and either way, you're talking, I don't know, thousands of light years, t- tens of thousands of light years, something do like that. Do we have something going out there right now to do it? No. Eventually? No. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're choosing much closer targets, like within the Milky Way, I think, to yeah. send probes and stuff too okay fair enough so the, the yeah that milky way is a thousand light years thick where are we in it are we on the right in the middle no we're on a on an arm pretty far out to the edge but like thickness wise oh deep uh, into it i don't we? know how do, i i i have no idea okay. I, in the middle i assumed well anyway here's some of the ways we know what it looks like okay so the milky way is a spiral galaxy which is like a flat disc with arms coming out of it and there are also elliptical galaxies, which are like big blobs, kind of, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are irregular galaxies, which are just all kind of screwy in a bunch of different ways. Most galaxies we find are spiral galaxies, right? Like 70% of them. And I think that fact and looking at those has helped us figure out what ours looks like from making guesses and observations. But one way that we're pretty sure we're in a spiral galaxy is what we talked about a little bit is the Milky Way itself, what we're named after. Because that's where you're looking through the thickest part, right, mm-hmm. of the of the disk that we're in. But then we mapped it out, and this part gets a little bit hard for me. But we can look at the radiation that's coming at us from space, and we can f- look at, like, the sh- phase shift. Is that what it's called? Like the blue-red shift and figure out which direction it's coming from, which direction it's moving, how the star it came from was orbiting. And we can use all that information and put it together to, like, figure out how far away the farthest stars are, which direction they're rotating around the center of the galaxy. And I think that's kind of how we know how many arms there are and stuff like that, which I think at this point we do. Um, But then also we just look at other spiral galaxies and compare it to what we observe in our galaxy. And there's like colors we can observe or like dust composition we can observe that we recognize in our in our own galaxy. And we can tell how far away stars are. And so then we can tell that we are in a spiral galaxy and not an elliptical galaxy by sort of mapping out those stars and seeing that they exist in these bands. So we can have, we have a pretty good idea of what the galaxy looks like, especially our side. But it is, it's amazing when you, like, you can go look at maps of the Milky Way. We've done, like, pretty 
extensive surveys at this point. And sometimes people will be like, how do we not know how many stars are in the Milky Way? Like, just count. That's how I felt. Just count. Like, <laughs> it would take a long time, but like divide it up and like have a bunch of people do it together. But you can't mm-hmm. see them all. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, they are all overlapping each other in our galaxy surveys. When you get to a lot of the interior of the galaxy, which is where most of the stars are, you know, there's a bunch behind a bunch behind a bunch behind a bunch. It's wild. You want to know a weird, 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 weird science fact that I heard from Henry Reich of Minute Physics? Uh-huh. If the galaxy, or if the universe was infinitely old, the nighttime would be bright. Because if the galaxy is infinitely big and it was infinitely old, all of the light from all of the stars would get to us. And they combined would be as bright as the sun. So there's still light from stars that are trying to get that still coming towards us. Yeah. Like the only reason nighttime is dark is because the, the, all the stars haven't had time for their light to get to us. If it's an infinitely big universe, which it seems to be. Does the light ever dissipate? Would the light from the farthest star away from us dissipate eventually? Or would it hit us? There isn't enough stuff to stop it. Like there are gas clouds that can that that stop some light, but there's just not enough of that. I don't know if it would be a hot, if it would be as warm. Well, I don't know why it wouldn't be as warm if it was as bright. Yeah, I guess. I well, different radiations are different, but but plants yeah. would love it. They'd be having the time of their damn life. Probably be ah, probably be way too hot, man. Can I ask one from Luke yeah. Richardson? This is what was the scientific fact that hooked you into what you do now? I don't know that I had a the scientific fact. But I did have a very, I don't know, nerdy childhood. I don't know. I've, I've always been super into technology and computers. But I remember my dad uh, took, took me out to see some working scientists. They were ecologists because my dad worked for the Nature Conservancy. And uh, he took me out to like walk around and like they were studying gopher tortoises or something. And what struck me was how, uh, how it was work. Because like up until that point, it had been magic Scientists found out that the dinosaurs got destroyed by an asteroid and scientists found out that were like that were made out of cells. And so you sort of think of it in these in terms of these big breakthroughs. But the reality that science is just like, oh, these are like workers. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. like they, they they like trudge around and they dig and they have shovels and they have they also have like computers and and fancy hard drives that, you know, contain hundreds of megabytes, which was very impressive at the time. But like, you know, they're grizzled, leathery skinned people <laughs> out there, like, like doing, doing the research that like, uh, that real, that matters. And like, and I was like, oh, that's a, that's a thing people do instead mm-hmm. of it's like a, a sort of like body of knowledge that exists but it's clear now to me as a person who has been alive for, for four decades, there's just so much more we know now that we didn't know then. But at that point in my life, like everything that we knew for the most part was known before I was born. It was certainly known before I was interested in science because mm-hmm. like it, I, that was a total of four years or something. So the fact that it's not like this like static body of of knowledge, but that it is a thing that lots of people do and is can be uh, like drudgery sometimes, but that that's how you find out information that nobody knows the answer to was certainly not an individual fact, but I think that was uh, really powerful for me. Can I ask you a question that might sound rude, but it's not supposed to be? Okay, please. (laughs) Why did you decide to talk about it instead of do it? 
Well, I wanted to do it, but then I realized that the thing that I liked most uh, at school was when my friends were having a really hard time and I helped them. Oh. And as, I mean, as as just discussed, science can be pretty boring drudge work, especially when you're just like a lab tech, which is if I didn't go get a PhD, that was pretty much the future. There, there were there were certainly other like I would have had a different career path and I'm sure I would have found satisfaction and joy in it. Um, but then you wouldn't have known me. Yeah. But that was, <laughs> yeah. And I was trying to like when I moved to Montana, I was trying to get lab jobs and there just weren't any. Yeah. That that was part of it. The job that I got out of uh, high uh, out of college was just so. It wasn't that the work was that boring, though. It was. It was this. It was quality control. It was the same. You know, the fungus thing you were. Yeah, doing? same like yeah. twelve steps over and over again every day. Right. But I was the only person in the lab. You know, I had to focus too much that I couldn't like even listen to an audiobook. But oh, I was just alone. Horrible. For nine or for eight or nine hours a day counting spots. Weren't you friends with some possums or raccoons or something? Uh, armadillos. Oh, right. Okay. Well, <laughs> they, those, that's they, not nothing. Yes. Yeah, I had them. They weren't always around, though. Sari, what was the scientific fact that hooked you into what you do now? I feel like it was similar. The, the, the path from lab work to science communication was very, very similar, where mm. um, I didn't even have armadillo friends. I just had bacteria all around me and, and cell cultures in cow blood. And so it was truly just like me pipetting things and then being like, okay, I'm going to grow you bacteria and now I'm going to murder you to take your DNA and and just like constant cycles of that in lab work that made me realize that it was not for me. Mm-hmm. But I think what got me, the twofold thing that got me into science was watching crime TV shows. I was uh. very into forensics and like the idea that you could know things like not by deduction but by measuring like Mm -hmm. oh we can like measure fingerprints and measure blood spatter and measure dna and compare those things and i didn't quite understand it because all tv shows are kind of hand wavy Mm -hmm. but then when i took my first biology class in either seventh or eighth grade i also do not store long-term memories very good (laughs) my teacher was really good and he used biology to draw a lot of connections between things. He always had a a time at the end of the class where we could ask, like, either say two different topics and he would connect them using biology or ask, like, a random question and he would take a stab at answering it using what he knew about biology. And that was really fun for me because it solidified that, like, biology specifically, because that became my favorite thing about science, could be used to explain so many things and you can trace so many questions back to answers about like the molecules in us. So like learning about DNA and learning about our metabolic pathways and learning about our organ systems can explain why skincare products work or why disease works or why like brain is a whole separate thing. But I like, I I think I always was a question asking kid and realizing that by understanding microscopic stuff, I could answer more questions more deeply and never have to take anything for granted. Why didn't you become a crime scene investigator? I thought about it. That's I, one of the places I, was, I applied when I moved to Missoula. Were, there, mm-hmm. there was not, nothing available. I still consider it sometimes in like imagining the alternate versions of myself. In applying to college and undergrad, I got into a forensic science program mm. at, a, at a university and then decided not to go. I think I was calloused in a way. In, in high school where I didn't 
I didn't know myself well enough that hmm. I was like, oh, I could go in and look at dead bodies and autopsy them and like handle all these fluids and like uh-huh. understand them. And I think now I'm I'm much softer mm-hmm. and I think it would be harder for yeah. me to depersonalize the work. And so so I can see that being hard. I don't know. This is like not getting – this is not goofy anymore. <laughs> this is a deep <laughs> introspection onto why I'm not a forensic scientist. That's cool. I didn't know that, that that was something you considered as a potential future. You guys could have been a team, a oh, crime-solving wow. team. <laughs> I guess I would have been your assistant because I, I never was even considering going to forensic science program. I was just like, I want to wash your glassware. <laughs> <laughs> Pay me minimum wage, please, someone. Well, thank you for joining us for this inaugural episode of the SciShow Tangents Patreon podcast. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon. We're happy to... Oh, Tuna's got a cat. Oh, Tuna's been attacked by a cat. (laughs) I didn't even know you had a cat, Tuna. I've only had it for like two days, so... What the hell? (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, he's cute. We'll see see you uh, on our next episode of Tangents, which will be out shortly. And in our next episode of the Patreon podcast, which will be out next month. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Tuna. Thank you, Have a lovely day. Bye. Bye.